You're good. <laughs> um, as there are some people still coming in, if, if those who are sitting on the ends, if there are empty seats in the middle, if you could squeeze to the middle a little bit so people could have seats. Not surprising that Leia Price would play to a packed audience. I should begin with a confession. I first paid my dues in the Leia Price fan club, you can donate online, in 2004 when I read a truly astonishing essay called Reading the State of the Discipline. It appeared in book history number seven. It was, and I believe still is, the most acute and insightful writing that anyone has done on the limits and the possibilities of the study of reading history. And I paid my dues and have been a fan ever since. I would like you to read, I would like you to hear the very last bit of um, that article. Contra William James, what makes reading hard to study is not or not only that it's alien. The complementary challenge is to establish any critical distance from a field whose message is also the medium. She then adduces examples in the final paragraph of Peter Stalybras and Anne Blair um, being extremely successful. And finally she says, for all its interest in marginalia and marginalized persons, the history of books is centrally about ourselves. It asks how past readers have made meaning, and therefore, by extension, how others have read differently from us. But it also asks where the conditions of possibility of our own reading come from. Leah Price, as many of you will know, is professor of English at Harvard University, where she also holds a Harvard College professorship. She also directs, together with Anne Blair, Robert Darnton, and David Hall, names that will not be unknown to you, the faculty seminar on the history of the book at the Harvard Humanities Center. Her best-known book is the anthology and the rise of the novel, but there's a lot more in uh, Yale, from Yale University Press is about to appear Unpacking My Library, Writers and Their Books, which looks at the favorite libraries of 13 different famous authors. And then in 2012 from Princeton, a book I'm really um, eager to see, How to Do Things with Books in Victorian Britain. Um, this is what uh, the London Review of Books had to say about the anthology and the rise of the novel. 
where other studies have examined the history of the novel in relation to romance, to the rise of the novel, or to the emergent forms of subjectivity, Leah Price looks at novels in relation to the history of the book and to the proliferation of anthologies in particular. It is a refreshing change. Her book is rich in insights. Choice said, Price brings together book history and narrative theory in subtle ways to reach sometimes surprisingly original and engaging conclusions about the effects anthologizers, abridgers, and republishers have had on the production and forms of narratives, particularly women's fiction, essential for any self-respecting academic library. Sharp News said both the sweep of her argument and the quality of her particular readings make this a very important book about books and their readers. 19th century literature called her work richly researched, wonderfully provocative. Listen tonight to Leah Price, and you too will become a fan. Thank you. Thank you, Michael, for that characteristically and hyperbolically generous introduction. And thank you, um, and Amanda, more importantly, for um, bringing me here to speak. It's obviously a great pleasure to visit an institution to which everyone in this field owes such a debt. But it's a pleasure not unmixed with terror, because if you spend your life um, trying to persuade, if you, if you spend your life nagging other literary critics to the effect that wouldn't it be nice if we all knew something about the book as a material object, it's then a little bit terrifying to come talk to people who actually do know a great deal about the book as a material object. So um, I, I will probably experience some sort of imposter syndrome at various points during this talk, and I hope that you will validate that imposter syndrome by telling me after the talk at least some of the things that I am getting wrong. Um, thank you also for coming to listen at the end of what sounds like a very grueling day and almost the end of a very grueling week and almost the end of a very grueling session for the staff here. Um, so I'll keep it short. But, but I'll begin by asking you all to picture the room in the Google campus in Cambridge, Cambridge, Massachusetts, whose walls are lined with the severed spines of particularly eye-catching books that were disbound in the course of scanning. Um, these people clearly have a sense of humor because included among these spines are various uh, spines that read um, things like bookbinding for dummies. Um, when I first saw this room in the Google offices, I was fairly viscerally shocked. 
And thinking about why I was disturbed by this wall, it, it seems to me that my feeling was a little bit like the feeling that, um, that someone might have in seeing a row of taxidermists' trophies that had been eviscerated for the purpose of displaying their skins. Um, one goal of the book from which this, the manuscript from which this talk is taken, which as Michael said is called How to Do Things with Books in Victorian Britain, is to trace a genealogy of that unease or that disturbance. How and when did we come to be troubled by the split between the book as a material object, an object that can be locked up in the Google office, and the text that is, a sequence of words that floats freely, for the moment at least, in the ether or anywhere else. More generally, I ask when and why non-textual uses of books became a problem. In what genres, at what moments, did people begin to question whether it was legitimate to hide behind the newspaper in order not to talk to your spouse? to wrap fish and chips in its pages after you're done with it, to match the binding of your Bible to the ribbon on your bonnet, to fill a study wall with false books, or to decorate a living room table with very real ones that you have no realistic intention of ever reading. Um, and in tracing the shifting relation of those acts, to what we think of as authentic or legitimate forms of reading, we need to wrest our attention away from the fraction of its life cycle that any book spends in the hands of readers towards a much wider spectrum of social practices for which books can provide either a prop or a prompt. The practice on which I want to focus today is donation. <coughs> Everyone in this room will know that um, for the past century and a half at least, in the era of cheap paper, much of what's been printed has been given rather than sold. Some estimates identify Mao's Little Red Book as the most circulated book of the 20th century. Other people um, put forward a competitor in Mein Kampf, which is sometimes described as a bestseller, but I think would be more accurate to describe as something like a best giver, because most of the 10 million copies that were in circulation by 1945 were not bought and sold, they were distributed. Um, one was given away, for example, at every German wedding from 1936 onward. Part of the reason that, although we know this fact, we tend not to remember it, is that I think campaigns against censorship tend to direct our attention toward biblioclasm rather than towards book, forcible book distribution. On a daily basis, even within a liberal democracy like this one, the understanding of reading as a condition of political self-determination sits uneasily with the daily experience of having reading material, whether print or digital, thrust into your face, thrust into your mailbox, thrust into your inbox, thrust into the, um, in the case of the hotel I'm staying in Charlottesville, your bedside table. 
1995, Metro International began distributing advertising-driven dailies to commuters. Today, one in five of the newspapers distributed in Europe is free. Um, same thing in the postal system, more mail, more unsolicited mail, what we call junk mail, is now sent through the post than individually addressed letters. So when, when Luddites complain of the web as a home of spam and free content, I think it's important to remember that print got there first. Um, and yet we don't have, other than spam, we don't have any umbrella term for these different genres of free print, for leafleting, for postering, for um, circulars, for electronic spam. And it seems to me that the absence of such an umbrella term doesn't point to the insignificance of those genres. It rather points to the threat that they pose to a sort of commonsensical understanding of how print works or how print should work. In decoupling who reads from who pays, free print challenges three pieties. That acquiring a book implies choosing it, that owning a book implies reading it, and that virtual encounters with an author distant in space or time can release readers from the constraints of their own social or geographical or temporal position. Giving free print its due, I think, would result in a different cultural history in which, far from enabling mobility or independence, the book would become a prop for commemorating your forebears, deferring to the judgment of your elders, and accepting favors from your betters. And if that sounds too gloomily uh, Foucaultian, I should also say that I think that taking free print seriously would allow us to recognize forms of creativity that otherwise go unnoticed because their inventiveness operates at the level of circulation rather than of composition. This, you could say that this is true also of digital spam. There's nothing particularly artful about the wording of the Nigerian letter but the idea of the distribution mechanism of the Nigerian letter is a brilliant one. So, um, to the 19th century. 20th century states and corporations borrowed their distribution methods from 19th century Protestant evangelicals. More specifically, from the early Victorian tract societies that were the first to realize the potential of subsidized print. Measuring by what has survived, we call the 19th century the age of the novel, but if you counted by what was produced, we would call it the age of the tract. Um, just to throw a few large numbers at you, um, in the first seven years of its existence, by one estimate, the Religious Tract Society, founded in 1799, distributed two million books. The Society for Promoting Christian Knowledge, uh, which is the Anglican counterpart of the non-denominational RTS, um, unloaded 8 million volumes in 1867 alone. We're talking about a very large scale, and this is why, as Leslie Howsam has shown in a wonderful book, um, Cheap Bibles, uh, Bible societies and tract societies were the great 
innovators in printing and in book distribution and in various aspects of book production in the 19th century. Um, now, free print is probably too crude a term to describe the distribution mechanisms that these tract societies and Bible societies elaborated. The transactions by which these books changed hands weren't required to produce a net profit, but they strove to couple the outflow of books with some inflow of money. This is partly because they didn't want to pauperize the recipients of these tracts and Bibles, um, also because they didn't want to undervalue their wares. If you hand something out for free, people are likelier to use it for waste paper. But it's also because they understood giving and taking payment, the very transactions whose anonymity secular economists in the middle of the 19th century were contrasting with the personalized nature of gifts as an opportunity for face-to-face -face accountability. The tract did not create what Roger Chartier calls communities of readers much less what Stanley Fish would call interpretive communities. And this is not just because scant evidence suggests that anyone actually read these tracts. I'll argue at the end of this talk, if there's time, that tracts pose an equally sharp challenge to Benedict Anderson's model of imagined communities. One sign that tract societies saw the moment at which a book changes hands as more important than the moment of solitary reading is that tracts less often represent books being read than books being given. As you can see in, um, this is the first page of um, Hannah Moore's tract, The Sunday School, where you can see the lady handing a tract to, uh, to the, uh, the Sunday School Pupil. Um, now, this is, an, this is an early tract, and the kind of outright gift-giving that you see here disappeared fairly quickly, um, mainly because as the population urbanizes, gentry no longer have a reliable way of checking up on whether the tract is working its desired effect. So the Religious Tract Society lends tracts for a fee. The Bible Society collects on an installment plan. Both of these methods create an excuse for return visits. You bring a tract one week, you come to take it back the next week and to give another. Paying for a book week after week, the installment plan, turned out to be just as entangled in ongoing relations of trust and guilt as gift-giving like this ever had been. But evangelicals continued to debate whether social networks served to transmit books or books served to connect human beings. And if that sounds like a familiar formulation, it's because missionaries identified books, Victorian missionaries identified books, as the locus of two problems that some 21st century commentators imagine to be unique to digital media. That is, whether content can be distributed more effectively through gift or through sale, 
and what role social networks should play in that transmission. Where Victorian secular genres, as diverse as the buildings Ramon and the political treatise, equate reading with individualism, evangelical tracts show more interest in its interpersonal dimension. It's true, when you think about it, that even apart from books' dependence on multiple agents to recommend them, sell them, clean them, maintain them, sort them, retrieve them, and dispose of them, the affordability of printed matter has traditionally depended on amortizing costs by sharing, whether in the form of resale, that is, you decide that you can afford to buy a book because you know you'll be able to sell it later. This is the way our students buy textbooks, unfortunately. Um, of loan, public library, private book club, or of more complex arrangements in which newspapers get handed down a chain of users, cheapening as they age. Closer to home, masters and servants face the challenge of reconciling shared access to bookshelves with differential use of their contents. This is the problem of how to get your wife or your maid to dust your books without actually letting them read them. Thackeray asks the reader of his roundabout papers to suppose you ask for your newspaper and James says, I won't do an accent, but James says, I'm reading it and just beg not to be disturbed. Here, the problem is not just the fact of different social classes touching the same object, but more specifically, the order in which they touch it. That is the traditional logic in which the newspaper descended from richer to poorer readers and then from poorer readers to the kitchen and the privy is here reversed by the valet getting first crack at the day's news while the master is still uh, innocently asleep in his bed. In this model, books undermine social distinctions, books and, and other printed matter, less through their textual content. This is about the times, it's not the rights of man then more obliquely through each user's knowledge that the object in his hands has been handled by someone else before and will be handled by someone else after him. Tract societies reassert the social order threatened within the home by book borrowing and outside the home by the rise of the public library. They do so not by denying that books have the power to link masters with servants, but by substituting unilateral giving for secret sharing. Where middle-class novels, like Thackeray's, imagine the valet cutting ahead of his master or the maid peeking into a yellow back en route to her mistress, a tract like this one reaches its end users only after being vetted by their betters. Those competing conceptions of the book as go-between collide in... Um, a tract that I want to talk about for a few minutes. Um, it's by a very prolific author named Charlotte Adams who wrote dozens of these things. Um, the one I'd like to talk about is called uh, Little Servant Maids. It's published by the SPCK in 1848 for three and six. And it's in a format suitable for middle class ladies to give to their servants. Um, how do I, Amanda, how do I um, advance the... Just 
Oh, thanks. Yes. Um, but not that far. Yeah, let's um, go back. See. There you go. Um, oh dear, it's a little bit cut off. Um, We're missing a little bit on the end. Yeah, I, um, okay. Apologies uh, for the, um, the slight cropping, um, involuntary cropping. Um, this is a passage that will just give you a little flavor of the language of these tracts. Um, it's a very simple language, very repetitive. Um, many were the precious minutes, quarters of hours, even half hours that Caroline wasted in, uh, Caroline is the servant, that Caroline wasted in idly scribbling over every scrap of paper that she met with. Pen and ink was a temptation that she seldom tried to resist. Mrs. Sewell, this is the mistress, had, among others, a few handsomely bound volumes lying on a table in her sitting room that were chiefly presents to Frank and contained some pretty engravings. Heedless of soiling the binding or marking the fair pages with dusty fingers, the servant would amuse herself by looking over them whenever opportunity offered. She knew she had no business to open these books, and whenever she heard a step approaching, she closed them hastily, so many of the leaves got creased and dog-eared. One small volume she was so delighted with that she did very wrong and took into her bedroom where she kept it concealed under her pillow. But of course, this being a religious tract, detection came at last and with it disgrace, as is the case with most deceitful persons. It is very strange, observed Mrs. Sewell to Martha. Um, Martha is the sort of uh, stool pigeon servant who tattles on the others in this long episodic succession of bad servants. <laughs> that these sort of persons always fix on one's best things. There were other books quite as amusing with plain bindings lying beside those that are handsomely bound, but they do not appear to have been touched. There was a book of poems in a paper cover exactly the same as the Morocco one she took away to her bedroom. Um, now, you all will probably have various things to say about this passage, I'll, so I won't belabor the obvious, but um, I will just point out that you might expect Caroline's dusty fingers to connote industry rather than idleness. That is presumably the reason her fingers are dusty is that she's been dusting the sofa table. Um, and this brings out the way in which um, dusting is an activity that requires books to be handled by those who, whether for reasons of gender or class, are not entitled to read them. Um, this is a motif that some of you will probably recognize from many fin de siècle uh, treatises on um, on book collecting, um, just to take one example out of dozens, William Blades in The Enemies of Books, Why Need the Woman Folk, uh, this is 1896, Why Need the Woman Folk, God Forgive Me, Bother Themselves About the Inside of a Man's Library and Whether It Wants Dusting or Not. When your books are being dusted, don't impute too much common sense to your assistants. Take their ignorance for granted. Your female help dearly loves a good tall pile to work at, and as a rule, her notions of the center of gravity are not accurate, leading to a general downfall. Um, and Blaze then goes on to uh, describe how uh, if you catch your daughter um, uh, touching your books, you should whip her, and so forth. Um, 
so here the issue is not misogyny, it's, it's rather about social class, clearly. Um, in a tract whose practical hints are devoted to all the ways that servants should touch and dust and scrub and polish every surface in sight, books seem to be the only context in which servants' hands are pictured as defiling rather than as cleaning. And one of the ways in which Adams resolves that contradiction, as you can see here, is to distinguish between fingers and thumbs. Neat fingers polish and iron, dirty thumbs, crease, and dog ear. Um, and um, to take another digital analogy, it seems to me that the issues that are raised in tracts like this one about um, the access of servants to books, about how to balance the maximum of access for cleaning with the minimum of access for reading, is somewhat analogous to uh, questions about how to store passwords on your browser. How much information do you want to get out there? How can you balance convenience against privacy? The scene of Caroline thumbing the contents of the sofa table dramatizes traditional debates about whether to lock the bookshelf, which are, of course, themselves backformed from older debates in uh, housekeeping manuals about how to secure the places where food and drink are kept. In this sense, the, the kind of disgust provoked by the servant thumbing your book is not that different from the disgust provoked by the idea that the servant might have taken a bite out of the pie before or after sending it to the table. The difference is that books were never included among servants' perquisites. That is, leftover food and out-of-fashion out clothes uh, provided a socially accepted bond between masters and servants. Whereas printed matter spoils less quickly than food and goes out of fashion less quickly than clothes. And in that sense, you could think of books less as... You, you could perhaps say that newspapers are more like hand-me-down clothing. That is, newspapers are handed down a social chain as they age, just as clothing is when it goes out of fashion, whereas religious tracts are more like servants' livery. They're a mark of servitude. Um, Adams's disgust at the maid who touches her mistress's volumes transposes from manuscript to print the traditional insistence in the same housekeeping manuals that letters should be presented on a tray. That is, that the moment when the servant's hand touches the envelope should be separated in time and space from the moment when the mistress's hand touches the envelope. Um, but since this tract is padded out with a long succession of differently incompetent servants, um, the successor who arrives after Carolyn has been set packing for the book incident um, turns out to be too lazy to walk upstairs and take a letter, and so she asks the messenger to throw it down to her in the area. Now, Becky had been told um, never to let messengers throw down their notes or letters, a thing which often dirties them so that they are unpleasant for a mistress to handle, but she determined to disobey orders. The note had a silver border and a delicate white seal. The area was wet and dirty. 
The boy made an awkward cast, it fell in the dirt, Becky picked it up and began wiping it, but she made matters worse, for her fingers and apron were all black from the fire she had been poking about to make her toast, to which, of course, she was not entitled. Um, And you've probably all heard in this passage the echoes of Bluebeard, um, with ink replacing blood as the mistress replaces the husband, with the um, you, you, could, you could think about that resemblance given that the SPCK is very interested in replacing chapbook fairy tales with this sort of goody-goody narrative. Um, but, it, but that resemblance also points, I think, to the oddly sexualized register in which servants' contact with written matter is represented in religious tracts. Becky's successor is ordered because, of course, Becky is sent packing as a result of this incident. Um, The third bad servant is ordered to look at the chairs, the backs all covered with dust, so that you might write slut with your finger on every one of them. And um, this is not actually from the track. This is another instance of the same joke, um, actually, from Punch. It's, It's a very common joke in the 19th century. So it seems almost as if cleaning is the only form of inscription permitted to servants, a negative of the marks that Becky's dirty fingers make on the white note is uh, the servant's fingers hypothetically writing slut in the dust. Um, scenes like these, and I, I, okay, I, I, I will not, uh, for the sake of time, I will not bore you with the fifth bad servant, um, but her crime is that she's trying to practice writing, but she's only used to writing on a slate, and therefore being unused to a pen, she lets big um, gobs of ink uh, sort of drop on the clean window, on the clean white paint. She tries to remove them by wiping her hand over them, but this, of course, gets her hand dirty. Then she tries to rub her hand on the pin cushion to clean it, and so forth, and so forth, and so forth. Um, Seems like these literalize the metaphor of dirty books. Um, What's striking about them, I think especially to anyone um, coming to them from the 18th century, is that the traditional fear that the book's content will corrupt the servant is upstaged, is crowded out here, by the fear that the book's beautiful binding will tempt her to disobey. That is, um, if you think of the traditional accounts of why servants shouldn't read, they usually go something like this. The the, the, The servant reads a book about a fine lady. The fine lady is described as wearing a bonnet with a ribbon. The servant starts daydreaming about ribbons and steals a ribbon from her mistress and um, gets transported. Um, But here, the thing that is stolen is not some object represented within the text. It's rather the book itself. In the same way, the text stops short of imagining the servant peeking into her mistress's correspondence. The worry is not that she'll have some kind of prurient, prying interest in the content of the message that her mistress is receiving. It's simply that she will dirty the outer envelope. Taken cumulatively, these scenes conflate the characteristically Victorian anxiety about the proper relation of reading to marking that is, the anxiety that um, Heather Jackson has wonderfully described. Do marginalia betray caring too much about the text 
or being too careless of the book, with an older debate about whether servants' literacy should be passive or active. The internal discussion in the early years of the SPCK about whether poor children should be taught to write or only to read gives way here to plots that position writing where we would have expected reading to appear. That is, it, the problem is not that the maid is surreptitiously reading her mistress's letter, it's rather that the maid is marking the letter with her own fingers. A final case of, and here and after this I really will stop with the bad servants, a final servant putting a good book to a bad use. Um, uh, this, this is a vignette called um, One Thing at a Time, um, Jane, which is a kind of um, caution against multitasking. <laughs> Jane has left off her business, and sorry, th this is from a different tract, one that has a much simpler language, as you'll see. Jane has left off her business of sweeping and dusting the room and is looking at the books which were placed on the table. Perhaps it has pictures in it of pleasant places far off, but whatever it may be, it would seem better if Jane finished her work first. The implication, I think, is that it's a, um, it's a book of, of missionary literature, and yet that, um, that it should not be read. Um, now remember another Jane's daydreams of pleasant places far off. Um, this is a shout out to um, Barbara Heritage, um, prompted by the idling with books that John Reed reminds her belong to someone else. This is, of course, from Jane Eyre. You have no business to take our books. You are a dependent, Mama says. I'll teach you to rummage in my bookshelves. No less than the great secular novels of development, Religious tracts, which are not by any standard that I can imagine great, equate picking up a book with asserting a self. The difference is that Little Servant Maids makes the narrator, rather than an unsympathetic character like John Reed, the source for the comment that the servant had no business to open these books. That's a phrase that appears both in the religious tract and in Jane Eyre. Once having business to take or open books, Note that neither text uses the verb read. Becomes a synecdoche for membership in the middle class, the opening scene of Jane Eyre comes to look less like a psychological meditation on readerly interiority than like a debate over a poor relations class status. Whether that individualism is attacked in the conversion narrative or endorsed in the Bildungsroman, both genres pit reader against family. The only difference is that as tracts continue to define family as an economic unit joining masters with servants, novels place that intention with the modern sense of a nuclear household where gender and age replace class as the source of difference. Now, none of this perhaps is very surprising. What is surprising? is that even over the course of two centuries that saw equally drastic changes in the nature of domestic service and in modes of book distribution, as late as the late 20th century, well, as late as the middle of the 20th century, novels representing master-servant relations continued to prompt middle-class readers to worry about running into their own servants in the audience of a book. 
A century before Little Servant Maids, the prefatory letters to Shamala include Parson Tickletech's recommendation to give a copy, quote, to my little goddaughter, and pray let your servant maids read it over or read it to them. A century in the other direction, every juror is charged to imagine a copy of the second most famous English novel about master-servant sex, passing from his hands into those of a dependent differentiated by class, age, and gender. This is uh, the trial of Lady Chatterley's lover. You may think that one of the ways in which you can test this book and test it from the most liberal outlook is to ask yourselves the question, would you approve of your young sons, young daughters, because girls can read as well as boys, thanks a lot, reading this book? Is it a book that you would have lying around in your house? Is it a book that you would wish your wife or your servants to read. Clearly, this is hokum. Um, the jury to which this charge was made included several women. The men serving on the jury were not, in a majority, um, uh, employers of servants. But it seems plausible to speculate that the reference to your servants in the plural is a way of buttering up the jury and trying to um, win them over to the prosecution uh, to flatter them by, assumption, by the assumption that they are wealthy householders. Um, now, the, so um, it seems to me that um, we can take, well, we can take two things away from, uh, fr from the anxiety about servants' reading. One is that where secular autobiographies and fiction alike credit books with leveling distinctions of class and age, or even, of course, in American slave narratives of race. 19th century didactic literature represents access to books as dependent on social relationships, and domestic power struggles reciprocally as finding their expression in tugs of war over books. Who can read? Who can handle? Who can own? Free print reminds us that where booksellers fulfilled the orders of middle-class adults, most readers, whether young, female, or working class, have always had to submit to the literary direction of others. This is something that I think about a lot as a teacher because, of course, we're trying to, as an English professor, certainly one of the things that I'm desperately trying to do is to inculcate into my students a love of pleasure reading, and yet the way I do this is by assigning them reading, which um, at this time of year, it uh, painfully comes home to you. Uh, if you go and look at the books being stacked up for the fall semester on the campus bookstore, it's not just used copies of the organic chemistry textbook, it's also used copies of, of Jane Eyre, of of the novels that I love and treasure, and you can see the highlighting, you can see the marginalia, and you can see that not only are students not attached enough to the printed text not to sell it back, they're not even attached enough to their own marginalia not to sell it back, um, and then you go crazy. Um, so, um, 
The same belongings that allowed financially independent adults to stamp their identity onto bookcases and sofa tables was tainted for middle-class children by association with a teacher or parent, and for working-class adults by association with the district visitor or tract distributor. This talk could be taken as one very long footnote to Natalie Davis's reminder, as long ago as 1975, that books constitute not merely a, a carrier of ideas, uh, sorry, not merely a source for ideas, but a carrier of relationships. Not merely a source for ideas, but a carrier of relationships. After 35 years of scholarship, we're in a better position to see that those relationships can be serial as easily as synchronic. That is, serial as in the case of marginalia, contributed by successive readers of the same book, synchronic as in the simultaneous reading of multiple copies of the newspaper. This is where you will all think of page 35 of Benedict Anderson's Imagined Communities, that page on which every heat map begins to spontaneously combust. Um, and um, Anderson, of course, as many feminist scholars have noted, focuses on the public sphere of the subway and the barbershop rather than on the private sphere of the home. Um, seems to me that the homes described in religious tracts and housekeeping manuals, like the ones that I've quoted from, as well as the parishes in which the tracts themselves circulated, form a rather different venue for the sharing of books than the barbershop and the subway. In place of the community and anonymity that Anderson describes, tracts both create and represent face-to-face -face relationships. What links members of this community is more concrete than the newspaper in Anderson's account. It's a book that can't be in two places at once, whose different copies are far from interchangeable. My point is not simply that a model of print culture that made tracts its exemplar would look different from one that took the newspaper as representative. It's also that even Anderson's own example presumes a presentist model of how and when the newspaper circulates. Taking for granted what he calls the obsolescence of the newspaper on the morrow of its printing, Anderson adds, we know that particular morning and evening editions will, be, will overwhelmingly be consumed between this hour and that, only on this day, not that. Contrast sugar, the use of which proceeds in an unclocked, continuous flow. It may go bad, but does not go out of date. Now, what Anderson elides, of course, is that for most of its history, the daily newspaper's first day formed only a small and unrepresentative fraction of its life cycle. Um, and, and this is, I suppose, my shout out to um, Andy Stauffer. One of the many objects handed along, or in social terms, handed down, the paper subsided by easy stages from those able to pay a premium for fresh news to those forced to content themselves with day-old or week-old information, and finally from the piano nobile to the grocery, the kitchen, the privy. To pick up on Anderson's metaphor, no, the newspaper doesn't resemble sugar. I would say what it does resemble more closely is something like bread, which can still be sold once it's day-old. It's just sold for a lower price. 
By assuming that, and I quote again, the daily newspaper was made to be perishable, purchased to be thrown away, imagined communities confuses the real simultaneity of the news with the illusory synchronicity of paper. In the absence of synchronicity, virtuality disappears as well. No longer dematerialized, papers become paper. No longer disembodied, its users not only read, but eat and defecate. As virtuality goes, so goes equality. If awareness of textual content knits individuals into a national community, awareness of a page's material attributes splinters that public along lines of class and gender. Anderson's emphasis on the relationships among readers provided a corrective to the assumption that books serve to vehicle an encounter between an author's mind and a reader's. Thinking about the circulation of, of objects through time would take us one step farther. The somatic traces of previous users, whether in the form of inscriptions or simply of smudges, spills, and stains, remind each reader that however much the book feels like a point-to-point -point medium, it has broadcast that illusion to others before them. I'd like to suggest in conclusion, and I am wrapping up, that that tension takes a different form today. When 21st century scholars hesitate whether to speak of the reader in the abstract or of empirical, plural, readers, we echo 19th century writers' recourse to reading as one of the arenas in which to explore the relation of the individual to the mass. A gulf separates any literary critic's introspection about her own reading of a particular text, whose interest lies in its atypicality, even its perverseness, from a social scientist's description of readings that are removed from his own world, whether in time or in abitus, think of um, not only of a historian describing reception in the past, but of, for example, a sociologist like Elizabeth Long describing a middle-brow book club, and whose agent is imagined as either collective or representative. What Victorian evangelicals understood is that those logics are not mutually exclusive, that just as even the commuter hiding behind the newspaper is enlisting the book in an interpersonal transaction, so the district visitor who uses a track to mark her social position is also defining a self. The challenge facing a cultural historian becomes less to adjudicate among those different models, to align the book with freedom or constraint, with the individual or the collective, than to reconstruct the complex interplay between the book as choice and the book as burden. The book is a prompt for solitude, and the book is a bridge among its users. Thank you.
really interested by, I think, this last picture, the, the maid who's reading potentially missionary literature is still not allowed to because she's supposed to be working. And so you've kind of done a, a great job of disconnecting the form and the content being verboten for, other, for, for different classes of people to interact with. And I'm just wondering if you could speak a little bit to the exact form of the tracts that were distributed by the millions, because you spoke of them sort of variously as volumes and right. books, but um, the way that Peter Salibras repeatedly talks about what is a book right. makes me think, are they not just you know fo quickly folded, very cheaply produced pamphlets, or are they actual books like Bibles? Right, th th that's a good question. And no, um, the material form is actually very heterogeneous. Some are tracts in the narrow sense. Um, others are full-fledged, full-sized, bound books. So these same publishers are, um, they're really trying to saturate the market by publishing at various price points in various formats. And that's true not just of the material form of the book, but also of their linguistic style. That is, some are written in a simpler language, some are written in a more complex language. They're, they're written, as we would say today, at different grade levels. Um, so, so yeah, many of them are not tracts in the, the, the bibliographic sense, strictly speaking. Um, and yeah, and it would be interesting to look at the distinction, at, at the differences among the texts that are published in these different formats. Some are republished in a succession of different formats. Some are collected, and there's a lot of um, sort of self. There's a lot of recycling going. So, so in this case, it is um, because it's cheap or free. In fact, um, the form and the content both allow for wide distribution, and you know, generally everybody reading. But what you're saying is that if it's a an expensive book that somebody else paid for, then regardless of the content, a servant should not be reading. Yeah, I think you can, I, I think that's right, and I think you can see it more clearly in a way with Bibles, simply because the Bible is so clearly the, the most important example of a book whose text is, whose text is supposed to be standardized, but whose format is supposed to be infinitely variable, um, there is a passage somewhat similar to this one in another volume uh, published by the Religious Tract Society in which a maid, um, a maid who is dusting the bookshelf takes down the Bible, um, becomes engrossed in it, there's an illustration of her standing on the library ladder somewhat precariously, you know, one foot on each of the steps, it looks as if she's about to fall over, and she's engrossed in it so much so that she drops the duster, as here she drops the duster on the floor. She reads and reads, and then she gets to servants, obey your masters, and she you know, puts the book back on the shelf as, as, if, her, as if her hand were burning. And um, the happy ending is that in the next chapter, she receives a copy of the same I think the wording is um, a counterpart, identical indeed in all but externals, <laughs> meaning, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, meaning it, it, it's exactly what you're pointing out in, in your question. So yes, absolutely. Andy? Do you think it's fair to say that um, what's happening in this, in this sort of developing cultural discourse about what to do with paper and books in the home 
there's not just like a training of the servants, but it's also a kind of normalizing or training of the middle class mm -hmm. book and paper runners themselves. As it seems to be that there is a little anxiety, sort of how, how, how do I manage mm -hmm. paper and books and collections and all this mm -hmm. new print that I have access to as a member of a sort of middle class in Victorian Britain? I would think that is it kind of a two-way street or there's, there's, a, there's a complicated mm -hmm. process going on. That's a great point, yes. And um, getting, you, you know much more about waste paper than I, than I do, Andy. I think that's, that's a very...
is going to be an expert from Vogue magazine, very expensive, but I'm sure it's worth it, who is going to teach us how to turn old quilts into skirts. But the speaker of the week after will teach us how to turn old skirts into quilts. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was really interesting to hear what you were talking about, like transgressing class boundaries um, and these kind of alternative forms. Um, I particularly think about the finer binding, the poorer binding, and the illusion that maybe certain should have been reading the ugly binding. Um, and even this idea that you know tracks are somehow appropriate to read, but the master's materials aren't appropriate because they soil them. And I'm curious if you think memory has a role to play, that maybe, maybe the, the, this middle class are viewing their books is an extension of their memory, and the finely bound ones are, you know, supposed to be reified, they're supposed to be preserved as, mm -hmm. as an extension of their thinking, and these other ones are somehow um, okay for them to mess up, because that's not, in a way, it's brain damage when they, mm -hmm. you know, spread ink on the paper, or, I mean, it, it struck me as an odd idea, I don't know if you've seen something against or for that way of looking at it. Yeah. Yeah, certainly books, books are a kind of prosthetic memory. I don't know whether I would go that far, just in the sense that, yet it doesn't seem to be so much about the content of the books. That is, if you want to go for some kind of Cartesian dualism, it seems to be more about the body than about the mind. But, um, but yeah, I, I should think more about that. Thank you. Well, if they had really clean hands, they probably that probably means that they haven't been working hard enough. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I have to say, I feel that having heard this lecture, I understand the rare book school staff much better than I did before. <laughs> <laughs> this whole problem of communally shared texts goes way back. Augustine of Hippo at one point invades against men who leave chin marks on scrolls as they're rolling them up. <laughs> he says they get their greasy chins and their beards on the ends of the scrolls. And it's really, really bad that you be doing this. So, um, so the problem of others using your books and soiling them up is, it goes, <laughs> goes pretty far back, um, it's, it seems to me. Uh, this was splendid. We have a token of our appreciation for you, and we'd like to thank you. <laughs> our conversation will continue in Alderman 109, where there will be a reception to which all are welcome. Thank you. <laughs>